0: Let's pray. We ask our Father that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we might know your word and do your will, as we wait for that blessed day when we see our Saviour face to face at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Today is the beginning of the season of Advent. It is the season leading up to the coming and the arrival of God's Messiah into the world. It's the season that anticipates and celebrates the coming of the King, the Saviour, to rule and reign in the hearts of men and women, in the hearts of all who would trust him. It was the hope of Israel and indeed of all wise men who looked to God to fulfil his promises. Today that hope is... Not a coming that we look forward to, but an event that we look back to. An event grounded and rooted in history. An event whereby God took upon himself human flesh and became as we are in all things but sin. An event that opened the gates of heaven and stormed the gates of hell. During Advent, we look back to that event. But on this, the first Sunday in Advent, we look forward to another arrival, a second coming of God's Messiah. A Messiah who this time will not come in poverty, but in glory to judge the living and the dead. A Messiah who this time will present as a king and will reign as a king. Certainly king over the hearts of all who believe, but also king over the whole universe. For when he comes, God shall put everything under Jesus' feet, And both the Father and the Son shall be all in all, on earth as it is in heaven. And that's a truth that's replete throughout the New Testament. The teaching about the second coming of Christ just keeps recurring from Matthew to Revelation. For therein lies our hope, the completion of God's good work in us. The confidence that what we've entrusted to him, he'll guard until that day. And if Christ's second coming is regularly proclaimed throughout the New Testament, then just as regularly throughout Christian history has the timing of his second coming also been proclaimed. As early as the 3rd century, a Roman clergyman calculated that Jesus would return in 500 AD. He made that prediction based on the dimensions of Noah's Ark. Not sure how he did that. At the end of the 10th century, many Christians in Europe predicted Christ's coming and the end of the world on January the 1st, 1000 AD. Unfortunately, a lot of them decided to take their armies to unconverted parts of northern Europe and make converts by force. That's never a good idea. In the 15th century, the Taborites made the same mistake. They thought that Christ would return once they shed the blood of his enemies. Well, not only did Christ not return, but the German army turned out to be a lot more powerful than what they thought was the army of God. In the Middle Ages, Pope Innocent III, who was far from innocent, he took the number 618, the year that Islam was founded, and he added to it, yep, you guessed it, 666, and he came up with 1284, the sure date of Christ's return. More recently, in the early 19th century, Joseph Smith, the founder of the Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons as we know them, he predicted that Christ would return when Joseph got to be 85. Well, unfortunately for Joseph Smith, he was murdered by an unruly mob when he was 32, thereby making it necessary for Christ to change his travel plans. (coughs) Not to be outdone, Charles Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witness, in 1874 he predicted the rapture of the church followed by the invisible return of Christ in 1914. Now we don't know if that happened or not because he was invisible. In 1986 the Children of God predicted that Russia would defeat the United States and Israel and establish a worldwide dictatorship then in 1993 Christ would return. My personal favourite comes from the USA. There, a cult in Texas claimed that Christ would return in 1998 and he would invite faithful followers aboard a UFO. And though many UFOs were sighted in the area at the time, no landings were documented and nobody was reported as missing. Now. Even though these scenarios may seem rather amusing, you have to wonder why anyone thinks that they can predict when Jesus will return. After all, as Jesus says in verse 36, But about that day or hour, well, no one knows. Not the angels in heaven, not the Son, only the Father. And to think that we know when Jesus will return sets us up as superior to the angels and smarter than Jesus. It gives us the status of God himself, and such a claim is clearly blasphemous. That we have no idea when Christ shall return comes as no surprise. What might surprise us, however, is that Jesus himself doesn't know. How can one so intimate with the father not know? Or more to the theological point, how, how come the second person of the Trinity doesn't know something? Doesn't God know everything? Well, he does, but Jesus limited his divine powers when he became man. Though Jesus is omnipresent as a man, he chose to travel by foot, or boat, or donkey. Though Jesus is omnipotent as a man, he ate, he slept, and he drank to refresh his weary body. Though Jesus is omniscient as a man, he laid aside his full knowledge. When in the crowd, he asked, who touched me? When the disciples quarrelled, he asked them what they argued about. At the pool of Bethsaida, he asked how long a paralysed man had been laying there. Jesus chose deliberately not to exercise his divine attributes. To have done otherwise would have meant living a life that was not genuinely human. If he endured no limitations, then his incarnation would be a sham. If the crucifixion caused him no pain, then how could he suffer for us? If no bodily desires touched him, then how can we say he was in every respect tempted as we are? So Jesus truly didn't know when he would return. He didn't need to know, and neither do we. His work is finished, and now he's ready to return at any time. Perhaps now, in his glorified state, Jesus does know when he's coming back, but you and I certainly don't, in that we are almost entirely clueless. And I say almost because we are told three things about that day. At first, we're told that Christ's return shall be obvious no invisible returns, no surreptitious pickups with a UFO. From verses 27 to 31, we're told that Jesus' return shall be as lightning across the sky from east to west. It will be as obvious as vultures gathering around a carcass. The sun will be darkened and stars will fall from the sky and heavenly bodies will be shaken. And if you happen not to notice any of that, then the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory, and the angels will sound trumpets loud enough to wake up a teenager and to be heard by old men. No one will ever be able to say, Well, I just didn't notice. For every eye shall see him and every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. second thing about Jesus' return is that it shall be awesome. In verses 30, 37 and 39, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And though that sounds like a reference to his humanity, it actually refers to his divinity. That's the title Jesus takes from Daniel's vision of God, the Ancient of Days. And to the Son of Man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him, a dominion that is everlasting, which shall not pass away, and a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Christ's return shall make New Year celebrations over Sydney Harbour look like Boy Scouts rubbing two sticks together, hoping for a spark. The third thing that's clear about Christ's return is that it will be unexpected. That's the point of verses 37 to 44, along with verse 50. As verse 50 says, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. So it becomes a matter of being ready for the Son of Man when he does come, a matter of being wise in preparing for the coming of Christ. Certainly Noah was wise, he believed God's word, so he knew judgment was coming, and so was salvation. So he set about doing what God said, and preparing for that day. And the contrast with Noah is the foolishness of those who didn't believe God, who didn't obey Him, and were expecting neither judgement nor salvation. They continued life as normal, and knew nothing of what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's not a description of gross sin but rather of gross indifference. The evil here is the immersion in the everyday without a thought for the last day. If the last day is preceded by the indifferent, the ordinary and the banal, then our culture gives us every reason to be expectant. And yet, despite our expectancy, we shall still be taken by surprise. Of two workers in the field, and two women grinding with a handmill, one is taken and the other is left. Though two people can look so similar at work, they end up drastically dissimilar at the judgment. The day of the Lord is both a surprising day and a separating day. We don't know who will be taken <clears throat> and who will be left. We don't know who are the wheat and who are the tares. We can only work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And we need to do that as a priority, as a matter of urgency. Because as Jesus says in verse 42, we don't know the day that our Lord is coming. And if we don't care to know, then like the people in Noah's day, we shall be taken away in judgement. But if we do care about the coming of the Lord Jesus, then we should keep alert. We should do as the Apostle Peter tells us. We should make every effort to confirm our calling and election. For if we do these things, we'll never stumble and we shall receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Being alert is about being eager for the Lord's any time return. It's about trusting God at his word and being obedient to it. It's about being faithful in service and using the Lord's talents eagerly and responsibly. It's about being found doing good when the Master returns. And because the Master will come as a thief in the night, he'll most certainly take us by surprise. But we don't have to be taken unprepared. We can be ready, we can be faithful, and we can be wise. And that's the very question that Jesus asks in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and the wise servant? There's no direct answer to that question, only illustrations of the wise and the foolish. The wise person is the one who believes in Jesus and takes him at his word. That's not stated, but it's clearly implied. If we don't believe in Jesus and what he says here, if we don't believe that he has power to both save and to judge, and that he's coming someday to do just that, then the call to expectancy will fall on deaf ears. The wise person also does good and not evil. To wait expectantly is to work expectantly. All of Jesus' illustrations were of people working working to build the ark, working in the field, working with a hand mill, working to secure the house. And it's worth noting that the wise and the wicked servants are both described as being masters over others to whom they are responsible and having themselves a master to whom they are accountable. And though both are seemingly leaders in God's household, One is wise and the other is wicked. The wise and the faithful feeds his master's household at the proper time and he does good at all times. The wicked is not expecting Jesus to return any time soon, probably because he thinks that Jesus' bones are still in the grave and that Jesus' return is as likely as his body rising from the dead. Got that bit right. So instead of feeding the household of God with the word of God, the wicked servant belittles any who want to trust God and then aligns himself to eat and drink with the world. What a surprise the wicked servant will get. Here is one who purports to be a servant of God and a head over God's household, well, not rewarded for faithfulness, but condemned for hypocrisy. As Jesus says in verse 51, He'll be cut to pieces and assigned a place with the hypocrites where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Brothers and sisters, I don't think that that's a description of us. But I do think it's a description of parts of our national church and its leaders who are not trusting God or his word, who are not waiting expectantly for his return, who are not working for the good of the church and the coming of of the kingdom. And the warning for us is not to be like that, but instead to be alert. Not alert to think that we can interpret what even Jesus doesn't know, but alert to the signs of the times, signs that warn us of Christ's return. And for the unbelieving, the unfaithful and the wicked, well, that's a day of reckoning. It's a day when, according to the Gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But for the believing, for the faithful, for the obedient and the alert, well, the day of the Lord is not a day to fear. It's a day to look forward to. For on that day when he comes, the Lord Jesus will be glorified in his holy people. He'll be marvelled at among all who believe. For the grace of God that offers salvation, well, it's already appeared to all people. It's appeared in Christ's advent, his incarnation, his life and death. It's appeared in his resurrection and ascension into heaven. And God's grace in Christ Jesus, well, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It teaches us to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, let's not be like those who are asleep in the day, but let us be awake and let us be sober. The Spirit and the Bride say come. We who hear, we say come. Jesus, who testifies to these things, says, Yes, I am coming soon. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.